0: Signpost In Podcast, a space at life's crossroads for a refreshing pause and a bit of reflection. My name is Brandon, and I'm really glad you're here. I invite you to join me and my friends, Matt and Peter, for a friendly back porch conversation about prayer, Christian spirituality, faithful theology, and much more. So pull up a chair, grab a drink, and get comfortable as we start today's show. And when we're done, don't forget to visit us at signpostin.org to find out more about all that our ministry offers. Well, welcome to The Back Porch, everyone. Have you ever wondered if it's okay to want to experience God? And what would that even mean? And can an experience of God change us? or what if it doesn't? Well, I'm excited to have with me today, Professor Simeon Zoll, who's here to talk about his book, The Holy Spirit and Christian Experience. Dr. Zoll is a professor of Christian theology in the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge. He received his first degree in German history and literature from Harvard and his doctorate in theology from Cambridge. Following his doctorate, he held a postdoc position in Cambridge, followed by a research fellowship at St. John's College, Oxford, and was an assistant professor of systematic theology at the University of Nottingham before returning to his current position in Cambridge. Professor Zoll, thank you so much for being here on the back porch with me today. I'm delighted to be here, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And maybe the first question I need to ask you is after that rather lengthy introduction of all the Cambridges and et cetera,
1: why you don't have a British accent? Ah, that's that's a good question the the main reason is that i am not in fact british so i moved over to the uk 18 years ago for what i thought was a one-year diploma in theology just to try out theology after undergrad and that led to phd that led to various positions and and here we are 18 years later
0: (laughs) that's awesome yeah i i i was sort of shocked the first time i heard your voice i was like huh what's going on and then obviously yes so well cool well thank you as i said earlier i'm really excited to talk about this with the ministry that I do, this book was just kind of a godsend. It really said a lot of the things that I have been trying to say in ways that I needed to hear them said. So I was really, really pumped about it. I'm really excited to kind of pick your brain about all of these things, and I don't promise that this conversation will go anywhere linear because, as I said, there's a lot of stuff. The book itself is huge. Folks that are listening, it's definitely an academic book, not the kind of book you pick up and just read in an afternoon. However, very pertinent to the questions that I asked right at the beginning. What does it even mean to experience God? Can we experience God? And so professors all that's where I would love to start with you. It's just that really simple question. Is it okay to want to have an experience of God? But before I do that, I, I, let me back up. Tell me a little bit about why this is interesting to you. Tell me a little bit about
1: yourself. How did you even get into this? Happy to, to tell you, I mean, there, there's a lot of things in the book that I'm interested in and, and that have different histories, but basically I'm interested in experience in theology. So I came out of a background where I, I had a kind of Reformation style. My dad's ministry that I grew up with you know, was preaching justification by faith, and it was a very kind of pastorally integrated way of thinking about the Reformation theological tradition that I found really compelling. And then later on I got to college and I got involved in various ministries, including an alpha course and had some experiences through that, watch people become Christians all of a sudden in a room, that kind of thing, in a very dramatic way. And it just seemed immediately to me and also based on my own experience, I guess, that it was odd that there's a long-standing Protestant suspicion of religious experience or of claims to experience of God as in a really strong suspicion, like we really need to, you know, the old thing is the Campus Crusade had this thing where feelings are the caboose in the Christian thing. You know, they had this okay. train. I don't, you know, the feelings are, are not only not, the only thing that matters. They're the thing that matters least, and they're yeah. at the end. And that seemed obviously not true to my yeah. experience or that of anyone around me in various ways. But also not necessarily at odds with the Reformation tradition uh, that was that that wasn't as dear to me. So uh, that's where the exploration began, kind of personally. There's sort of also an intellectual version of that of that story, but that's the that's the personal story.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that's where that that question that I kind of want to dig into comes from is. Is it okay to want an experience of God? Because I grew up hearing, well, and in previous parts of my life taught, you know, like you can't trust your emotions. This isn't about feelings. So yeah, I mean, let let me just start with that one. You can take this however you want. If you want to just answer the question, is it okay to want to experience God, go ahead. The kind of corollary question is why do we distrust? Why do we Protestants distrust emotions so much or experience so much?
1: let me it's important to start i think with the with the second part i mean why is there this long standing history of of suspicion of emotion especially kind of very subjectivistic kinds of emotion especially emotional experience not just general experience and that that suspicion or that 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 anxiety goes back in the history of protestantism right to the 1520s really when martin luther encountered a group of christians who we called schwärmer or enthusiasts or fanatics and these were people who we thought were trusting their own experiences over and against God's word in some way. And specifically in the context, it was people who were sort of saying, well, I'm sure I'm right about the Eucharist, you know, in my exegesis of this passage, because I also had an experience that confirmed it. And he thought that was a terrible mm. argument and, and and it made him very nervous. And he kind of said, no, no, we have to trust the the, the Bible alone. And that, that sounds like a really good argument, right? If you're a Protestant, who's going to argue against trusting the Bible? But basically it's a false dichotomy, I think. Mm. Because, first of all, the Bible is extremely interested in experience. The Bible is a record of experiences. The Bible even makes theological arguments, even Paul makes theological arguments about justification. From experience, he says to the Galatians in chapter three, did you experience so much for nothing in the context of, of, of making a point about the nature of, of justification? And he is clearly referring to things that actually they actually experienced, you know, not just something theoretical. But especially when you want to about the Holy Spirit, the right Christian or theological language for talking about experience traditionally is, is the language of the Holy Spirit. And that's because the Holy Spirit is referred to as causing experiences, including emotional experiences. So what are the first three fruit of the Spirit love, joy, and peace. And there's no sort of serious argument that those are things that have no emotional valence. And certain joy is in particular, I mean, what else could joy be, really, if something, if it's totally separated from our experience? So there's the sense that the Bible is interested in experience, it records experience, it expects the Holy Spirit to give us certain kinds of experiences, it takes our emotions very seriously, and even to some degree sees certain kinds of emotions as connected to the presence or or work of the holy spirit in in christians. and so those are all reasons why the idea that you choose between the bible and experience doesn't work. if you choose the bible the bible tells you to think about experience as well, right? there is of course the problem of sin and of self-deception. that's where the real worry is i think historically that i think a worry that people have taken too far although it's a really valid worry but it's that, well, won't people just have whatever experience they have and, and say, oh, that was God yeah. and justify that sinful people are self-deceived and we're just going to baptize our own feelings and desires and say, that was God. And look at that guy on TV who's doing that right now. <laughs> yeah. Look at my friend who, you know, yeah, uh, did that the other day and told someone, oh, I know God wants us to to start dating, you know, like, well, uh, God didn't tell me, you know, that kind of thing. So you yeah. see where it's coming from, but it's it's an overdrawn uh, argument, I think. So if I'm understanding correctly, it's like,
0: and tell me if this is too simplistic, but at least one of the things I'm hearing you say is when I, (laughs) there's a false dichotomy between reading scripture and having this kind of knowledge of God that's accurate and having some emotional response to that. Like, maybe this is just so oversimplified, but in, in my way of thinking right now, it's like, if I'm reading scripture... And there is not some emotional response happening at the pro when it's when it's meant to be emotional when i'm supposed to then then i'm sort of missing something and i think we all know that (laughs) like i think even the people i know who would say you can't trust emotions still are trying to have an emotional effect on me when they're Mm -hmm. teaching or when they're talking and i think in some sense what i've one of the things i heard and liked is just the Just the clarity with which it's like, of course, God, God's word, God's works should impact me emotionally. I should have some level of, maybe emotional isn't even the right word there, but emotional, yes, definitely change happened within me. Or it's not, not even real. Like, am I hearing that right?
1: Ultimately, yes. So there's a there's a quote from from the revivalist preacher George Whitfield who says that the, that those who claim to have the Holy Spirit without feeling it, basically may actually be denying the thing. That that's a form to say that I have the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit never has any experientially noticeable effect on my life is sort of well. Then how do you? I mean, maybe the spirit. Maybe you, he called it a kind of form of practical atheism. Though that's very strong. I don't want to sort of polemicize. I just want to sort of open up really, but so i think we are feeling desiring creatures just as much as we are rational thinking knowing creatures and there there are two different things i would want to sort of emphasize there one is that the, the the doctrine of the incarnation basically that jesus took on human body means that the ways in which we operate as human beings ma- all matter in some way and so augustine says this famously in the city of god book 14 he says truly the emotions were not feigned in him who truly had the body of a man that jesus really did experience emotions he wasn't pretending that part of what the the what he took on what he redeemed what he was involved with when he wept when he got angry, when he loved, these were not, he wasn't miming something. He was actually experiencing emotion. And, and in doing that theologically, he was saying that the, the problem is not emotion. The problem is wrong or disordered emotion. So we, it's not that our emotional lives or our experiential lives are the problem, it's that they're disordered and, and they need to be healed or repaired. So just because just you fear, feel it doesn't mean it's good. Just because you feel it doesn't mean it's bad either, you know, by definition. So that's what but to, to go back to your original question should we want to experience god i think if, I, th- I think the answer is is of course and I, I also i wouldn't want to differentiate too strongly between this sort of cold rational knowledge over here and this these emotional fuzzy feelings over here and say we need both i think that's not quite the story either i think all forms of actual you know we theological reflection and and knowledge production would be the trendy term we would use now are 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 affectively inflected as they're involved with our experiences and emotion it feels like something the joy of discovery of a new piece of information in a book the sense of something clicking like oh that 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 argument is it's just so satisfying you know that's emotion too just because it's not a you're not crying doesn't mean you're not experiencing emotion i mean irritation and boredom are forms of of, of emotion scholars of emotion would 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 say at least they're 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 affective parts of are felt parts of our Life. I remember seeing something about uh, anyway. There's this very interesting story of, when, of Einstein discovering one of his great discoveries and and being just shaken with emotion at at sort of the the beauty of it. So that kind of so the idea that 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 thinking and knowledge is unemotional isn't really true. Mm-hmm. If you think back to any time you've really been persuaded of something, it's 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 usually involved a relationship. It's usually involved something that you that you connected with beyond just your mind. It's not just two plus two equals four. On the other hand, emotions are full of information and meaning and yeah. content. And we, God made us to to respond to the world and to learn things from the world in part through our emotional responses. I know something about my relationship with my son because of, not least because of how I felt when I first met him. You know that that's yeah. not a non that's that's not opposed to knowledge. That that's just a form of knowledge. So those would be the two things I would want to say there.
0: Yeah. Well, and I, and I appreciate it's, it's like, there's a, there's a collapsing of the false dichotomy in the word experience itself, right? If I think when I hear or ask the question, is it okay to want to experience of God, experience God, I often am thinking kind of purely in these very emotional, very big, dramatic kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I remember correctly, I mean, you, you point out that thinking is an experience i mean it feels like something to think (laughs) so there is a to experience god is not just to have these giant emotional experiences or whatever it it can be knowledge it can be and that's not as you're saying it's you're collapsing that that
1: distinction Mm So or at least showing how it's, 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 it's not a, in a simple form, it doesn't, it doesn't work. There's all, all knowledge learning is, has emotional dimensions and all emotions have, have learning dimensions and that and they're all connected. And actually this is what theologians have known this. It's the weird thing is that we forgot it. It's that's the weird sort of modern, huh. the idea that this is, even Protestants used to know this, you know, Luther and Melanchthon knew this. They talk about emotion all the time, positively, yeah. as I show in the book and Calvin too. It's, but like Augustine said, you you can't love anything without knowing it. Love involves mm. knowledge and knowledge and God gave us knowledge so that we could love. There's no, mm. these aren't different things. These are all closely connected and that, but it's weird that we've, we've, we've kind of forgotten that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That is weird. <laughs> One of the things you say kind of early on-ish in the book that I really appreciated is this idea, and I'm just going to quote it, it's perhaps the chief contemporary theological target in this book is a certain kind of complacency with theological abstraction that is often apparent in discussions of the Spirit and indeed in doctrinal and dogmatic statements more generally. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I really resonate with this. I have such a frustration (laughs) with theological abstractions both that i myself fall into and here could you explain a little more what your what your target is there in maybe
1: simpler terms for this sure i'd love to and i'd be interested to hear what you know what what kind of things that this that what makes that resonate what are the examples that come to mind for you yeah. of the, the kind of theological abstraction for me i i guess i've always been a tent a, a, There's been a lot of theological work that has been trying to dismantle the Reformation tradition from many different fronts over the last forty years, from Paul studies, from various points, and and I have been Mm -hmm. sensitive to that because I I I've I've found myself really helped by Reformation tradition kind of theology, and so. But one thing that I started to notice, partly through that kind of reflection, is that there's people started to 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 Make these arguments, or or, or say that well, you know, we can we can solve problems by just stating what's the case, sort of in our soul before God. So say, well, we we participate with God. And the category of participation is a very sort of trendy theological topic. It has its biblical roots. It has its Platonic roots. It has complicated roots. But this word that we participate. So that the answer, instead of being justified, that we need to think about salvation in terms of our, our coming to participate in God. And I have no problem in itself with the word participation. I think it's a word that right. we need to use to some degree. But when people say, "Okay, i figured out what salvation is," whereas the performers thought it was justification and and made in, and you no longer feel under the law in your life, now it's participation. And I say, "Okay, what does that mean? What is it?" I mean, I can tell you yeah. what it means in uh, technically or formally that we're we're sort of a, a derivative in, in involvement in God's attributes like immortality or God's knowledge or something like that. But but in practice, what does it feel like? Do, do you participate on a Tuesday or a Wednesday? Do you participate more after a year or less? You know, what is it? What it's just, it's a, it's a, it's an abstraction. It's a useful, not necessarily in itself bad abstraction, but it's one that to think that we've said all we need to say about Christian life and sanctified Christian life or, or the role of grace in Christian life by saying that we are, it's a form of participation in God. We haven't actually said very much at all, pastorally or experientially, even if we're saying the right word. And mm-hmm. so I want to press theologians and I give examples that Catherine Tanner does this at one point Uh TF Torrance does this all the time. He was a sort of easy target. He says, what God does is he changes us in our being. You know, I was like, okay, that's great. I want to be changed in my being. My being definitely needs changing, but is he ever going to change me in a way that I can actually notice in my life? You know, that like, will I, or or feel or or experience. So that's what I'm, but so I think it's a kind of hiding behind theological language, in some cases, even if it's unconscious, to to not have to deal with the challenges of talking about experience, which is hard to talk about in theology, because there are good reasons to be nervous about experience, whose experience, what do we mean by experience, a lot of difficult questions, but we can't hide from those questions by using abstract words, to get around it, and I, what I found in practice, often when people are talking about that, the, the most coherent versions they're really talking about sacramental. The, the, the makes the most sense when you're talking about the Eucharist, actually, mm-hmm. theologically. So that's an example, but there's a lot you can a lot of examples in, in theology. We say, "Oh, say the right thing," and you can't deny right. it. But how does that actually relate to to real life? It, that, that and theologians are not always good at connecting those two things. Right. Well,
0: that's that's precisely what resonates with me, is that. We can, we can say the right thing. We have the correct theological proposition. and But then the how question, well, mm. okay, but how? Mm. So I, in my work and experience, the word prayer is a massive mm. abstraction. I don't mean this in the, the, I'm not talking about theologians here. I'm just talking about in the general Christian experience that I have, people talk about prayer all the time or say we should pray more but have no idea what that even really would look like other than kind of work harder, do some more. Mm. I, I ran into a very interesting experience of this just, just recently, I'm in a a class on reconciliation, becoming a like reconciliation coach or something to that effect. And I saw a comment on one of the forum posts that was, it struck this person that in the process of forgiveness, The key is not more effort but more faith Mm -hmm. and faith is given to us by jesus and with this our upcoming conversation in mind my immediate question was like that sounds great what does that mean (laughs) so because i can imagine being somebody who's being coached towards forgiving someone and going great so for me to forgive requires more faith and faith comes from jesus not more effort okay, what now then? Like, what do I do now? And to me, yeah. that's that kind of, they're sort of, that's the right, I, if if you asked me on a essay, was that forgiveness requires more faith, not effort? Is that the right answer? Amen? Yes. Theologically, that's the correct answer. Mm. But it seems to leave a people in a very difficult place. The question, well, why didn't Jesus give me faith then? Where is Jesus in this? How do I how do I move? How do I take any step towards
1: having forgiveness? Mm. Is how I'm thinking about it. So yeah, that's a great. Those are great examples, and I, that's exactly. I mean, I think that I'm so interested in that the that space between the, the the right Christian thing to say, and where we we sort of really live. And some right Christian things to say do. Are, do, do help and, and some are, mm-hmm. are some some don't some are just sort of the right words. but it's very difficult to talk well about the, the how to connect those things mm. and and theologians are maybe sometimes particularly bad at it. Yeah So something I think you said this in a,
0: a podcast that I listened to on the same kind of idea. You, you made this idea, or you said this, and if, I'm probably going to misquote you, so just do with it what you will. But it's like we have this dichotomy, right, between emotions and theology or experience and rationality. And a lot of the theological abstraction that we get to solve this false dichotomy is, well, just don't fall off the horse either way. Don't go too far down the path of extremes. And and what i remember you saying is something like that's not very satisfying if there is an actual way to do it this middle then we should be able to articulate what that middle is mm-hmm. if i lob this very nebulous question at you <laughs> mm-hmm. how do you okay so what is that middle how do you articulate what that middle is for the the everyday christian who's saying well i want to be faithful but i also believe
1: i i'd like to have an experience of god mm-hmm. That's a, that's a good question. The, so the, the, I think I was, what I had specifically in mind probably was so James Dunn, a very, very famous Paul scholar basically tries to resolve the, in his big magnum opus, the theology of the Apostle Paul. He says that the, the grace works thing in Paul's like, is sanctification something that we have to work at or is it something that God does when we can't do it? And you know, the old, one of the oldest questions in theology really. And he resolves it by saying, well, clearly Paul is calling for a balance. So because Paul mm-hmm. says seems to say both things, therefore the answer has to be a balance. And so what I meant was like, that sounds good. I, maybe it's the right thing to say. Maybe it's the right thing at some level, but how do you actually know in any given case? So specifically in terms of and how you deal with pastoral care, when someone is, is in sin in some way, do you appeal to their will? Do you mm-hmm. give them information to help them get and appeal to their will to become more sanctified? Maybe in some context, I don't know. Or do you say... You express solidarity and and forgiveness and grace. You just say, "I I know you couldn't help it." You know, the, you can. Those are. It might be different things in different circumstances, but you can't answer that question by an appeal to balance. You have to do one or the other, in a given case. And so, so to me, it, it, was, it It's a way of not really answering the question while appearing to to answer the question. That's it. Actually, answering it in practice. How do you do it? How do you keep the right balance and everything? I think. You don't do it at that at the level of generality that we're speaking at. You do it in, you, you, by, by dealing with very specific examples or instances. So, in in a given case, the answer will be will be clearer than it w- is in the abstract. Mm-hmm. So, it's so I'm I'm less interested in a way in saying so h- how much effort versus grace should there be in my spiritual life in general than in, how should I deal with this situation I'm dealing with right now. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, and that's where discernment comes in. And you say, well, sometimes, what a person needs is. Is to hear total forgiveness. Sometimes a person needs encouragement or some kind of hopeful vision that is inspiring and gets them off their butt in some way. I don't know, but but it will it will vary based on specific circumstances and the specificities of what the Holy Spirit is doing in a given life. And that's maybe can be an unsatisfactory answer, but of course I also would want to say I always want to err on the side of grace when in doubt. But but that that's I, anyway. I think I think balanced questions resolve or forced to resolve in practice. And that's where it becomes more interesting yeah
0: it it strikes me that that's the there is this constant desire to like simplify down to a simple system the way to do whatever it is whether that's apply law and gospel or in this case have an experience of god or have a relationship with god there's one of the like most classic theological abstractions relationship with god what does that mean but it strikes me that what what i hear you saying is something like there isn't a simple sentence or simple set of principles that i can apply here in every situation rather in my relationship with god it's a it's a living breathing thing it's Mm -hmm. the kind of thing that well today i may need to really buckle down and learn some propositional stuff. Cause I need to have some, <laughs> I need to know some things. Mm-hmm. And tomorrow, I mean, you know, there's, there may be this very intense personal experience with those things and how that, how God is working with me personally. And some, you know, it's, it, it again, it just kind of strikes me like the analogy in my mind is the struggle I have with like all the marriage books that are out there. There's like a lot of good information in there. But the temptation is always to reduce my marriage to a, an algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yes. like, well,
1: <laughs> that's a problem. So I completely agree. It's sort of, I think personality tests can be that way a little bit. We say, if I can just figure out the right, my personality type, then I can justify what I do in all circumstances or something like that. Well, maybe you have certain tendencies as a personality, but also you have to deal with concrete situations like in a marriage. Marriage is really good at preventing you from living in abstraction, in my experience. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And it seems to me like some of the answer to the question about what does it mean even to experience God is sort of answered in that, well, it's it's a, it's like a marriage. I mean, what does it mean to experience my wife? Well, it means a lot of things in particular contexts that are very concrete that cannot be easily reduced to a single answer. Mm. It's something that I experience literally throughout time in different Mm. ways. And if we reduce it to, I just want to have this big union with God experience. Well, that's sort of like reducing marriage to sex, right? (laughs) You know, and that's, yeah. Okay. So I kind of want to make a bridge to the second thing I want to talk to you about which is that that question of sanctification and this mm. this idea of transformation this comes up a ton for us and you 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 elaborated on an Augustinian model of transformation or I I think we could use the word sanctification there. Can you explain what that is a bit more? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yes, yes, I'd love to. So, Augustine some development in his views over time, but but sort of what's the mature Augustine, especially in the period of the of the Pelagian controversy, had developed a he wrote about sanctification and how it works in in a very profound way. In a series of, of of tracts, you know, basically especially one called on the Spirit and the letter, another one called on nature and grace. And you know, we often think of of human nature as you know, so we have this cognitive rational side, we have this knowledge bit. And then we have our feelings and desires. And then in the middle, we have our will. And our will is sort of in a tug of war between what we know we should do and what we want to do and so on. And basically, it's funny because Augustine is sort of the the original major theorist of the will in the Western tradition. But he essentially, by, by the later part of his life, came to think that willing and desiring were essentially the same thing, that human beings... What determines human behavior is desire. We are creatures of desire, creatures of delight. He thought we were made that way because we were made to delight in God, to love God. Love for Him is a is 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 a is delight. Like he he if you say what's the way to make loving God make experiential sense? this person say it's it's delighting in God, delighting in the things of God. It's it's an attractive felt motion of the soul, mm. and and sin is desire for that which is not God, or, or, or a disordered desire for the things of God, where you, instead of taking this good thing that God gave you, you know, food, you worship it, you, 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 you have a disordered relationship, your desire, you desire it too much, or you desire it in place of God, that kind of thing. Or even, you know, these days it's with, it's with kids so much, you know, I don't know, I have three kids and it's so easy to see, make your kids the center of the universe in a way that makes them sort of God. And it's not because you shouldn't love your kids and desire their good, but that needs to be properly kind of ordered in, a wider, in the wider world that God made. Otherwise they, they, they become your God. So desire determines what sin is, and desire determines righteousness. Righteousness fundamentally is love. And mm-hmm. and sin is loving the wrong things that were in the wrong way. So that is a basic theory of human nature, human motivation. So for Gustin, grace, and he thought that this was the work of the Holy Spirit. And the verse he always refers to is Romans 5, 5. For the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit has been given to us. He thought that the Spirit's job is to pour love in our hearts. So far as God is intervening in our lives in a sanctifying way, for Augustine, the way to think about that is not not God telling us what to do and waiting for us to do it, is God pours the love for the thing into our Mm. heart. He thought that just knowing the right thing isn't enough. You have to want it. And we can all relate to that. He basically, Augustine explains why no one ever has their mind persuaded by arguments about politics. You know, yeah. because we don't want to, unless you, know, so you want to change your mind, you're not going to change your mind, that you're not really listening. And that's just us. That's actually how we are with most most things that matter. You fall in love yeah. with someone, your friend is like, I don't know, she seems like trouble. You're like, whatever, friend. Anyway, you know, <laughs> yeah. all the arguments in the world don't make any difference. Yeah. You've, you've been down this road six times before. It's going to be the same. No, it's not. You know, the yeah. heart does what it what it wants. And that's yeah. what Augustine thought that the Bible says, and what especially Saint Paul and Jesus taught about about human nature. So, if Augustine is right, and I think he is, and at it, its core, the Western Christian tradition has thought that he was right, the that means that the way you change someone is by changing their desire, and God changes people by by changing their desires, rather mm-hmm. than in the first instance through knowledge or through appeals to willpower. And so that's so, so it changes how you think about how to change people. Mm-hmm. It's why judging just, just nagging kids now doesn't really do very much, you know, but if they yeah. suddenly want, once they get there, they, they, their, they, catch They like, actually, I want to, I want to learn how to code because that would be cool. I could do this thing. Suddenly they'll spend 30 hours a week in their room learning how to code. Yeah. But if you try to teach, force them to learn how to code, they won't do it at all. So it's that kind of dynamic, but basically sanctification for Augustine that that's how it works. And that's why we're so bad at it. That's why yeah. so many of our efforts fail. But it's also why, when it works, it's the most glorious thing. He says, to, if, if if you know that you're obeying the law with 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 uh, out of delight or out of God's love, I mean, out of grace, basically, when you want to, if it's easy, basically, the law is either easy or impossible. Would be the kind of thing Augustine would would say. Actually, did did basically say. So that's that's what it is. I think it's a it's a, at one level, it's an esoteric theological view of human nature. On the other hand, it's actually really relevant to day to day life, ministry, and so on, I think. Yeah, so, I mean,
0: it, it just makes so much sense that, so so. it seems like what we're describing right now is what you're describing right now is the here's what needs to be changed is our loves, our desires, what mm-hmm. we delight in. And the question then becomes how? Mm-hmm. And there seem to be different perspectives on this you know again this is just me sort of summarizing what i read but there's sort of the broadly protestant kind of regenerative view i think is how you call it but what you call it that the holy spirit miraculously changes our minds and our wills somehow there's even the one that that i you know i get accused of more often than not given coming from the lutheran background which is there is no change it's you know you're just declared righteous, but nothing actually changes in you. <laughs> and then there's sort of the Catholic or virtue ethicist view, which says the Spirit infuses our virtues and gives us the power to now will, willfully change. So am I right in understanding on this level, just before we talk about how, but am I right in mm-hmm. understanding on this level that at least on this idea that something in our hearts, loves, desires needs to change, we're in broad agreement?
1: Yeah. Is that? Yes. Okay. Yes yes the question is that the, the, yeah the, the difference has come in the, in the how how you do it right
0: yeah and I, though I will say in my experience the question of what needs to be changed in a human isn't in actual practice with the Christians on the street understood <laughs> mm. right I mean most of I would say most a lot of people I speak to, have a very simplistic, abstracted view of what needs to be changed in us in order to be transformed. It's, you were kind of touching on it. It's very much a like appeal to my willpower. I just need to zoom around more and suck less as my wife says, that's what needs to happen. Whereas when we identify that it's the heart, the the desire, I like the word delight. When I identify it's the delight that needs to change, then it becomes, change becomes easy when I want to, is what you're saying. (laughs) And so God's not asking me to
1: hate the change and do it anyway. Mm. Yes, yes, that's right. I think you know when it happens, it's it it happen, It it feels very natural. I think, and it's and you almost don't even think about it. it. It sort of would be an implication of what Augustine is saying and what I think is true. Now Augustine also says that that the you know the, the there is a function of the law. And the law's is function is to basically—it's not to tell you stuff you didn't know. Usually, the law tells you stuff you already knew. It's—it's it's function is it to make you no longer delight in the thing before? It's to make you so miserable, basically. You that right. you are willing to free to the sweet medicine of of righteousness. He would say that because because human natures are just creatures of of love and desire. We're not—we can't just choose it. We have to actually be kind of herded, but including through through the negative experiences that God uses to to free us from our destructive or or unhelpful desires. But
0: but right there, you're already, I mean, rightly so, I mean, of course, already moving into the how, right? Like the difference Mm. in the how, because the law, again, like an oversimplified, perhaps understandable experience of the teaching of the law for many of us is its purpose is just to make me feel like crap. Mm. But what you said is very different. Like it's not it's not there to just make me feel terrible about myself, it's to make me feel, well, to use what you talk, powerless. To, mm-hmm. to, to experience my own plight, my own inability so that I can delight in something different. It's not a just,
1: negative, destructive thing. Absolutely not, and if it's just that, then it's, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's not actually the law if it's not leading you ultimately to the good. As in, in this, in this counterintuitive way, making the hurt, you know, my brother uses the image of you have pressing on the, God presses on the bruise, but in order to make you realize you need to go to the doctor, that kind of image, but it's always, it's always ordered to healing. Any kind of real conviction of sin, theologically, it has, is ordered to healing and wholeness and, and, and righteousness. But I guess anyway, there's, there's more we can say about, about, I guess, about the how this. Yeah. Happens. And it's more, again, it's, sort of, it's more descriptive. The other thing is by, by saying the Holy Spirit does this, you're saying, yes, there are these patterns. The Spirit seems to follow. But also it's like we can't really control the patterns. I can try to preach the law in a way that will be helpful and conducive to this. And maybe I'm just going to end up making someone feel terrible and then they'll just not want to talk to me anymore. Or, you know, it's, the Spirit is the one who, who actually can make it work, he mm-hmm. would say. And otherwise our salvation would be up to us but the key thing is that it 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 explains I mean, another thing that i really like about his view is that it because you can't control the deepest thing that matters here you can get to a point and this is sometimes what what the, what suffering does you get to a point where you say i you ask god for help mm. you say i cannot change my desires i cannot be different than how i am and yet i want to and i'm stuck you know this is how how aa begins the admission of powerlessness it's it's there's a strong analogy there and so also there there is this impetus to prayer, to a relationship with God. You finally are forced to get out of your own, to see the limits of your own powers and ask someone else for help. And that's that's a very powerful thing. Yeah.
0: Well, and this is where it feels to me like the washing away of the theological ab- abstraction, as opposed to the views that say, there's sort of this magical thing that happens inside of us. We don't really know what it is. The Holy Spirit changes hearts and then something. Mm how, and I'm asking this now, how
1: does the Holy Spirit change my heart, my desire? So there are two different levels of answer to that question. The difference between what Augustine, I think, is saying and what a sort of Holy Spirit changes changes us by infusing this new virtue of grace into our heart that kind of is like a new, better battery to help us Mm. with the slow process of sanctification through habituation and so on, which is sort of traditional Thomist kind of, View a lot. A lot of Christians have that view. That basically, once I'm a Christian, I have a better moral battery, and I can just do the stuff I couldn't do before because I have a better, better battery inside. And Augustine doesn't see it like that. Even if it descriptively sometimes looks like that from the outside, he thinks you change well, partly through God re- revealing you're ma- making you so dislike your sin <laughs> that you flee to Him. But more, more generally, though, he has a very strong view of providence. It, God brings you to the circumstance in which you can actually hear it. God brings mm. you to the preacher. He brings you to the friend. He brings you to to the breakdown. But also he brings you to the the the, the preacher of good news, the person who's going to love you, all those things. Only God can finally do it. He gives this example, I talk about it in the book, of why did Peter, when, when Peter's sitting down and hearing the cock crow, it's not until, and it, the way that August reads that passage, Peter and Jesus can't see. So when it says, then Jesus looked at him and then he burst into tears. Augustine interprets that as sort of the action of the Holy Spirit in sort of Peter's mysterious inner life to sort of, to, to effect repentance. Um, mm-hmm. but, but he asked the question, well, why wasn't it after the first cock crow that the memory... Mm-hmm. Game. What, what, what's, you know, memory is so weird and confusing and strange. Augustine said, we're mysteries to ourselves. We don't really understand how we work because so much of what's really going on is is subconscious and is about desires and is not even clear to us. And so it's just, so Peter, somehow the second, you know, the, the later cock crow, he's like, oh my gosh. He suddenly cut to the heart and he can't control that it makes sense providentially that he would be feeling bad at that moment that he'd be thinking about jesus you know that that, that in that moment when he realizes that jesus had made that prediction that jesus knew all along that he was going to sin or that he was going to mm-hmm. deny him and 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 in the same conversation it asked him to to be the leader of the church that's an incredibly powerful sudden realization of grace that jesus knew this was going to happen and still wants me to be in charge and that and and so he weeps. So for Augustine, it makes like a logical sense that that, that would be moving to experience that. that someone knew in advance you were going to mess up and and trusted you anyway. But also so it makes like a logical sense, but it also makes kind of providential sense in the history of of Peter's life, his conversation with Jesus it's all coming together. So God alone can orchestrate these things truly, even if he often follows certain kinds of patterns, law gospel preaching or or whatever it is, but or or just patterns of of drawing and desire. I remember once there was I was stuck. Uh, There's a point in my life where I was playing a video game far too often during my PhD, <laughs> like really far too often. And finally, the breakthrough was realizing that there was this other game I could play that wasn't as addictive, that it was like really appealing. I was like, okay, I'll I'll delete this and I'll get that game, and that was enough. But it was just, it was a good example of just it was I needed a desire for something new rather than just guilt wasn't doing anything. Guilt was just making me play the old one more. God, you know, he brought me out of it through reminding me that this other cool game existed. Delight, (laughs) in which I could delight.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: Uh, I I
0: very much appreciate that you played too much video games. It just gives hopes for the rest of us. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, so what I hear there is, it's like, it's another phrase I heard you say of, in another context of, the the whole world is a hospital. Like this... Mm -hmm the order of events going on in history are the way God is the Holy Spirit is changing us and bringing And it's a very particular, very individual thing in some cases. Yes. We can talk in some general terms about how I might be able to approach somebody and give them whether they need to hear that their sin is destroying them. So they wouldn't delight in it or whether they need to hear grace. That's going to be a very individual thing that I have to use discernment and wisdom for. And that's a pattern that works. But I resonate with what you're saying very much on the level of, like, with my own children mm. and the struggle that a parent has of, like, well, how do teenagers turn into respectable adults? I have no idea. <laughs> mm. But I do know that as a parent, the real thing is to trust that the Lord is working through the events of their life in the way he wants to work. Mm. And that may mean me taking action for sure. mm mm-hmm. But the underlying belief here is not, you know. So to Mm. kind of bring that into what I understand as theological terms, right? It's like, well, God works through means. Yeah. Back, kind of circling back to what you said earlier, this makes a ton of sense when we talk about sacramental theology because God works through Sunday morning receiving communion. That's there. That my wife has had many times. She she says that's where she touches God. You know, there's times when she kneels at the rail. And it's boom, but God brought her to that point, kind of like Peter or whatever else. I'm not saying she needed to repent like Peter, but brought you know brought her to those points, and it would make sense naturally. Yes. But it's also God's
1: yes holy direct work with her. Exactly. Then we do often naturally fall into seeing those as as a, an either or. That either God yeah. did it or it makes natural sense. And that that's that's a it's a bad theology of creation. I mean God created this world, God works through this world, and and that's that's that doesn't mean it's not God working. And
0: mm-hmm. things
1: can be it was both my therapist and God working through my therapist, you know, <laughs> yeah at the same time. You know, God worked through through a cock crow. Anyway, so yes, for sure. And I think that's a very powerful it, it makes sense of our actual experiences of God. I think sometimes though, with experience, you asked about the big experience, mountain t- you know, the, the big overwhelming experiences. And I, I, I'm i not against those. I think a right. surprising number of people actually at some key point in their religious life is, did have something like that and that has changed them forever. And, and it's a form of slightly, you know, it's just growing up as a Christian is realizing that you don't just chase that and that things are more subtle, and, and that God can be present in all kinds of ways that are not reducible to that one moment. And that doesn't mean the moment wasn't super significant and real. Some in the charismatic traditions and stuff, people say, no, it's God working immediately, like not through these natural means, because it doesn't feel when it's a, we have a really big experience, you have some kind of really powerful. It feels like the heavens opened. It feels like the mm-hmm like lightning came from heaven it doesn't feel like the logical conclusion of the providential order of my life narrative it feels like yeah. god just completely turned your life upside down and i think with retrospect we could say well actually it makes all there are a lot of things that led you to that point and God was actually in all of it. He just couldn't see it yet. You know, that kind of thing. It's what that the C.S. Lewis book, The Horse and His Boy, is all about. But the, so I, I don't want to say that the, the, the really wise, important point about the net God working through means doesn't mean that God doesn't work through big things that sometimes are so big, they almost feel like they don't have means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. It, it seems to me that the, like one of the practical
0: effects or uh, freedoms that i i experience from this kind of understanding is i don't either need to zoom around and more work harder try to you know sanctification is not dependent upon me exercising my my new virtue set nor do i need to wonder if god has just ignored me you know, I haven't somehow got the miraculous infusion that I needed to have. My heart hasn't been radically altered because I still sin, but rather there's this, it reminds me of a book, Abandonment to Divine Providence. And I can't remember who wrote it, but book is a series of short meditations and they're all the same exact meditation every time it's God is working in every event that happens. Faith is just trusting that that's the whole book you've read it now, but, but like that's the freedom i have is that sanctification is happening to me through the ordinary course of my life god is doing it and i get to experience it (laughs) i think that the the freedom then too is enacting or practicing the virtues that i'm learning doesn't have to be like an it doesn't have to be layered over my life like a diet plan it can Mm -hmm. be me following the work of the spirit as it lays out for me, which I find great comfort in. I didn't deal with stuff until I was 40 because the Holy Spirit, (laughs) (laughs) which was really, really free. Before, before we wrap up, I do want to ask this question because it's, it's a question that we've talked about within our own work a lot and it's you, you hit on it so well, which is that question of the phenomena of non transformation, that experience of I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be getting more like Christ. But I'm not. I have yeah. persistent sin. I'm not changing. How does that fit in to this
1: Augustinian hmm. model and how, how do you address that? Well, I, I find the Augustinian model is helpful partly because it does make better sense of this not uncommon experience than other models. So if the model is the battery model, I have a better battery and then it's not working, then your conclusion is either I don't actually have a battery or I've lost my battery. Or there's no God, you know. I mean that that you're, you're left uh, if you're saying I'm a Christian, therefore I must be getting sanctified by definition, and yet I'm not. Then your your theology is putting you at odds with your life. And I think any good theology of the Holy Spirit means you're attending to the actual reality of your life, even if it's not what you expect or want or hope. And you, that's the raw data of 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 your. There is your another alternative God. there.
0: Just there is the other alternative of you can actually just ignore that you're not getting better and pretend like you are. I mean, that, that yeah. is hypocrisy. Ten. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and and be self-deceived. And de- yeah, I mean, that's right. and, and, and lie comfortably. No, that's true. That's true. But so this phenomenon, I mean, it's it's any again, I, I get very comforted by history with these things. And and I, I talk a lot about Augustine, but he's he's at the center of a lot of this thinking. There's a great article by a guy named Robert Marcus, I think, called Christian Mediocrity. And it's, he's this great Augustine scholar and he's basically, Augustine's developed his theology of grace all connected with his discovery of his own mediocrity as a Christian. When he first became a Christian coming out of Manichaeism and he had really high hopes that he would be this great holy saint. It's sort of ironic, right? Because, you know, he was a great saint, but he realized he just wasn't changing as much as he, and and he learned more and more that his thought deepened and reached its most profound point all connected with the very fact that he wasn't getting better. He actually Mm -hmm. produced the most beautiful theology in reflecting on how little he'd changed. Mm -hmm. And so this word Christian mediocrity, I chose the word non-transformation in the book because it seemed, I don't know, more neutral in, in, in some way. But I think it's something that any good theology has to be able to account for. And I think an Augustinian theology, like we've been talking about says, okay, I haven't changed. I want to change, and I haven't changed, and I've prayed to change, and I've asked. God. So partly it makes you talk to God. You say, "God, why haven't I changed?" It's not just sitting around feeling bad. It brings you to God, even if just to start the conversation. The second thing, though, that Augustine also says—that's all part of this—is the sense that we're a mystery to ourselves. If, if my theology of sin is right, if my theology of human nature is right, then I'm not actually a very good judge of whether I'm sanctified or not, mm. and I may and actually make a lot of sense as a sinner that I would admit we, we call this the noetic effects of sin, which is the technical way of saying the, the, the way in which we don't, we don't see reality correctly. All theologians have talked about this as one of the effects of, of the fall. And so we don't see ourselves, we ourselves are very complicated. We don't know why we do what we do. We don't know why we, you know, it's all therapy is like, oh, wow, this whole thing that I'd never even thought about has actually been driving my life for 30 years. You know that's that's that makes sense to a lot of people. That makes sense of lives our lives have to experience. So Augustine knew about that, and so a I would want to say just because you think you're so unsanctified, who knows? And and that very humility of realizing that, wishing it were different, that's actually a pretty long way for a human being. On the other hand, if you think you're very sanctified, hey, maybe things aren't quite so clear as as you think. But another way, your sanctification is in God's hands. And so I think I say in the book what what the this whole attitude means is that in especially in a practical Christian pastoral context sermon pastoral ministry, you know that you have to treat every single person like they are a sinner. And the, the most sanctified person in the world is still a sinner in total need of God's grace at all times and you you do ministry on that basis. You assume that, that that's what's really going on at some level and that will if you preach that way it'll connect but you also yeah. assume that this person is completely righteous and justified and, and saved and beyond all reach of their sin in the ways mm. that, that matter most and, and are, are free, free children of God. And not slaves of sin, and so those things are both true. And you preach, you preach both. The problem is when you try to get in the middle, and you say, "Well, you're you're getting there a little bit." But mm-hmm. I, I, I take comfort in the in the humility of not really knowing uh, who do, who am I to say how sanctified I am? And maybe your wife has is is a better judge. And you and <laughs> our kids, my goodness, when you start to realize how much your kids are noticing that you thought they didn't notice, you know, as they get older, like, oh gosh, they know all the. I can't hide from them. Anyway, that's. But I think it's good. It's a it's a theology that can't handle it can't make sense, compassionate sense of the experience of what seems like non-transformation is, is, is not an adequate theology to, to lives at least as I, as many Christians experience them. Mm -hmm. I I think, I
0: think what you said there at the end, that if we can't make compassionate sense of it, Mm -hmm. because that's what I see is, you know, the alternatives tend to either be, well, you're not making progress according to the schedule that, that, that we have. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're not a christian you're you're just a really terrible christian those models tend to be very well one hypocritical but uncompassionate you know without without a real appreciation for what you're saying that we are a mystery to ourselves and i think even that connects that to that idea of being in that that the the law reveals to us our plight i love that that idea like this understanding that I literally am powerless over my own sin. And that should, from God, that elicits an incredibly compassionate response and should also elicit a kind of compassionate response from me. It, here's just one of the things you say, and I is, I highlighted this right away. It's that, you know, as opposed to, okay, I'm in my Christian life. I'm not being sanctified as much as I want to. I'm not transforming as fast as I want to, or at all maybe I'm not a Christian, maybe I'm a terrible Christian. And your response was, the Augustinian model says something more like, that's not a reliable distinction between a Christian or not. But what is a reliable difference is that even in the most pessimistic moments, and I'm just quoting here, or in those most transigent cases is the perception of the consequences of our sin. And I think that's what I, to me, that kind of summarizes so much of this. It's the, on Sunday morning, when I, when I confess I am by nature a Sinful and unclean. I, you know, I, I, a poor, miserable sinner. It's when I hear that as hopeful because of Mm. what's coming next that that really
1: is the difference to me. That's what I heard. I I don't know. Yeah, it's not really a question, but I'll throw it at you anyway. (laughs) but I love. I mean, absolutely. And it does. The other thing is that it unlocks compassion for other people. If you think that the other person's problem is because they're not trying hard enough, you know, or because they just (laughs) they just don't care about you, you know, like well, of course they don't care about me. They're Selfish human being, you know, well, of course, they're not trying hard enough, you know, and, you know like like yeah. the thing about should I should I zoom around or, or not, you know, it's like, the truth is, you're going to zoom around anyway. Yeah, even if you know, you shouldn't, you know, that <laughs> that having compassion, just be like, well, you know, when someone does does wrong to you, you know, that there is yeah. something in saying, well, you know, it wasn't good what they did. I wish they hadn't. It hurt me. We can talk about that. But. You know, I relate. I know what that's it, like. Yeah. Is this just occurred to me? Just
0: now, so we'll see. But it almost feels like it's sort of fair to summarize a lot of this as saying, relax <laughs> <laughs> Like relax. God God is good and is doing good with you for you. And all of my kind of rushing around I need to zoom around more and suck less in my life, or I can't help myself. I am zooming around more all the time, trying to work. It's like the, the sort of overarching message here is it's okay the Lord knows he's mm.
1: he's got gotcha. you yes I, I think so it's, it sounds so obviously what Christians should be able to say and so simple but it's it's the funny thing is how hard it is for us to really believe that yeah I'm trying to find ways of of communicating that in a way that seems authentic and not yeah. glib because it is true
0: yeah well and it, it it strikes me too that it sort of i think that goes full circle back to the question of what does it mean to experience god well in the community with a friend in the church where i can have a moment of that experience of relax it's okay i've got mm-hmm. you god's got you that isn't an authentic experience of the holy spirit itself i mean that there, there is god is saying right? to you even if that's just from your you know my best friend who said dude it's okay <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. Professors, all. thank you for your time. I have very much enjoyed this. Listeners, if you have questions, please shoot them to me, podcast at signpostin.org, and we'd love to hear your feedback on this. So thank you very much, and may the grace of Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Signpost In., a nonprofit Christian ministry dedicated to helping people connect with God and find direction. We offer spiritual direction, retreats, and lots of other resources like this podcast. Please visit us at signposten.org to learn more. We especially want to thank our generous donors who support our work and keep this podcast going. If you've benefited from something you've heard on this show, please consider supporting us by making a tax-deductible gift at signposten.org/donate. That's signposten.org/donate. And thank you.